0: Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research, so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to Episode 4 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And today, I'd like to begin our episode with a brief experiential exercise. Now, I'd like you to actually feel what I'm going to share with you. So please take a moment to adjust your awareness. Imagine you're driving, alone in your car. It's nighttime, and you feel it coming again. That indescribable terror that rushes through you with no warning. Your ears start ringing. Your hands feel sticky on the wheel your entire body tingles and goes numb. Your heart is racing so hard that you literally think it may explode or just stop. And you hope it does until your thoughts are gone, out of control, swept up in what feels like a brutal tornado of raging panic, a manic dance with insanity. And then your breathing becomes terrifyingly shallow as your throat squeezes around it. Your vision blurs and patches of darkness appear and disappear as you come to a red light. You put your foot on the brake and look to your left at the person stopped next to you. And then everything turns black and it ends because you're unconscious at the light, alone in the driver's seat of your car, in the dark. When you open your eyes again, the light's still red, but the car you saw next to you is now gone. Your foot's still on the brake, thank goodness, and you wonder how many times that light changed with you sitting there, literally knocked unconscious by the unexplainable terror that takes your mind and body to a place where no one can reach you, where no one can save you, whenever it wants, at random times, unprovoked for no reason at all just because it can, and it lives inside you now. This is my story. It happened nearly 30 years ago. Um, Panic disorder took over my life very suddenly, literally out of nowhere. It consumed me every day for over a year. It would attack me randomly at home and in public, even while sleeping, nowhere was safe. I remember thinking that I'd rather every bone in my body was broken because that could be fixed. But this thing that lived inside me was untouchable. No one could go inside my head and screw it down or take it out. And I was sure that it would victimize me for the rest of my life. Unless I ended my life, which at the time seemed like a perfectly reasonable solution and I began to think of suicide as the only real way out until a psychiatrist found the right combination of antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications to finally make it stop. A few years later, I weed myself off of the medications and it was gone and I'm so grateful. Panic disorder is just one among several anxiety disorders and also just one among many other mental diseases that millions of people struggle with worldwide. In the U.S. alone, about one in four adults suffer from mental disorders that include depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, addiction, and dementia. We're talking about over 25% of the U.S. population, hoping for normalcy, desperate for the inner peace that the rest of us take for granted. And researchers can't make a real dent in treating, preventing, or curing mental illness until they have a full understanding of how healthy brains work in the first place. As noted in Episode 3, this basic, academic, foundational research of healthy systems is the starting place for all treatments and cures. But in this case, we're talking about understanding how our brains control complex and tangible things like thoughts, learning, memory, reason, and emotion. Now you're probably thinking, how on earth do we do that? I mean, is this even possible? Well, I'm happy to report that it is possible. It's happening now. In fact, it's been happening for decades. But doing it well requires the most brilliant minds in neurobiology. And one of the most prominent among them is Dr. Elizabeth Murray, a brain researcher with the National Institute of Mental Health, whose cleverly designed studies with monkeys have overturned years of dogma related to how the primate brain supports cognition. Resetting the course of brain research worldwide with the hope that millions of people struggling with disabling mental illness can feel whole again. Joining us today to discuss basic brain research and Dr. Murray's work is Dr. David Yench, another prominent brain researcher whose impressive career studying the neurobiology of addictions earned him the Society for Neurosciences Jacob P. Woletsky Award for Innovative Research in Drug Addiction and Alcoholism. It's arguably the most prestigious award there is in addiction research. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Yench.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Cindy.
0: It's a pleasure and an honor to have you as our guest today. Now, as you know, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, otherwise known as PETA, started a very aggressive campaign of harassment against Dr. Murray, or Betsy, as she's known by us and other friends and colleagues, over a year ago. They've released several press releases about her work with monkeys, in addition to protests and other campaigns, targeting her at work and at her home. And while I'm truly horrified by how this beautiful person is being treated by these folks, I'm also extremely concerned about the misinformation PETA is pushing out to the general public and our lawmakers about Betsy's research. Because if the people reading these press releases believe what they've read, then it's entirely possible that our lawmakers could make some very dangerous decisions regarding our health and the health of our loved ones, including our pets. So in the interest of truth and honesty, and in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, I'd like for us to go through one of PETA's more recent press releases about Betsy's work and clarify the actual facts for everyone listening. Our tax dollars support this work, and I think we deserve to know the truth about how our money is being spent. Is that all right with you, Dr. Yench?
1: Absolutely. This is such an important topic to be taking on.
0: It's my pleasure. You, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. So I think I'll just get right into it. Okay, so the title is Animal Experiments Are Coal in a Solar World? Join the 21st Century. And the first thing that they say is basically the animal experimentation industry exists in the land that time forgot. While the world keeps spinning and technology leaps forward, pushing humanity to rapidly increasing advances previously thought impossible, animal experimenters cling to the rusty past. So, you know, in other words, we have all of this technology. Why on earth are researchers still clinging to the rusty past? Um, how do you feel about that characterization, Dr. Yench?
1: Animal research has absolutely nothing to do with clinging to the past. It's about clinging to hope that future discoveries are going to save lives that we can't save today. It's about clinging to the truth that animal research is a powerful way to deliver on life-saving treatments. And it is still vital to efforts that steer disease into health and that turn suffering into well-being. Science has made the world such a better place, safer, healthier, in the last 200 years, and animal research is part of that overall effort. I like to think about it this way, in 1900, just 121 years ago, around the time of the birth of my great grandparents, the worldwide life expectancy at birth was 32 years. By 1950, 50 years later, it had risen to 48 years, and by 2000, it was well over 70 years. And much of this progress is attributable to science-based public health advances, including better treatments for disease. And the medical progress we've seen over this period of time has been mind-blowing. And animal research played a pivotal role in all of it. Type 1 diabetes went from being a lethal disease to a manageable one. Hepatitis C is now curable in many people. People that are HIV positive can live long and healthy lives. Uh, Many forms of childhood epilepsy can be treated with drugs rather than neurosurgery. And when, a few years ago, my father had to have correction of an aortic aneurysm, it was fixed using a stent graft and some sophisticated catheters that moved the graft through his blood vessels, making open chest surgery unnecessary. In 2020, 53 new drugs were approved by the FDA, including the first-ever treatments for Ebola, multiple new drugs for various types of cancer, and a completely new agent that's used to measure and diagnose the progression of Alzheimer's disease using brain imaging. And dogs and chimps and monkeys and rats and pigs were involved in these experiments, and we have them to thank for these amazing advancements. So we made a lot of progress, but recent events show us what we all know, which is that there's still much for us left to do. Provisional estimates of life expectancy in the U.S. showed a shocking setback in 2020, largely attributable to COVID-19 and to addiction-related overdoses. So we need to keep investing in science to preserve health and life. One of the challenges for science in the future is that researchers naturally solve the easiest problems first, and what remains in front of us is increasingly the really hard stuff. Um, And this is particularly true in the case of the brain, which is ridiculously complicated, far more complex than any technology created by humans, spaceships, smartphones, nuclear reactors, robots. They're nothing compared to the complexity of human brains and even animal brains. So, though we understand enough about the brain to treat some of its illnesses and explain some of how it works, it pales in comparison to what we have left to learn about it. And if we're to make the progress we all want in this area, we're going to have to be in a position to directly measure and manipulate the activity of the molecules and the cells and the circuits that make up the brain. And these are things that are simply not possible um, in human subjects for scientific or ethical reasons. So... Rather than clinging to the past, brain science has been creating amazing new technologies that allow us to evaluate how neurons and dendrites and axons and synapses all work in health and how they dysfunction in disease. Um, Some of this research requires genetic modifications that are not possible in human subjects. Some research requires intracranial surgeries that permanently change or structure or the function of the brain. Again, not possible in people. And some mechanisms in the brain can't be studied at all without having some or all of the brain in a dish. Obviously, this is something almost never possible with human subjects. And these aren't just arcane experiments. They are the processes themselves by which we go from knowing nothing and losing the battle against disease to knowing enough to develop some effective therapies. And when these efforts are conducted in a humane and responsible way in animals, we can learn these critical things about the way the human brain functions and how we can treat it when it dysfunctions.
0: Yeah. Something you said in there really resonated with me and I think it may be the source of confusion for the public and maybe even PETA. Most folks don't understand the relevance or value of basic academic research, of our need to understand the complexities of health before we can even try to understand disease. Their minds go straight to cures without thinking about what has to be learned to make them possible. I think of it like a car engine. If your car isn't running well, you take it to a mechanic and he pokes around in your engine. He asks you to step on the gas so he can listen to it and watch it and smell it and see what's going on with your engine. And then eventually he'll say, oh, I know what's wrong. And of course, the reason he knows what's wrong is because he knows what a healthy, properly functioning engine looks, sounds, and smells like. And he needs to know that cold in order to figure out what's wrong so he can propose a fix. And I think this may be what PETA is unclear about. For example, they've said repeatedly throughout this campaign that Betsy's been doing brain research with monkeys for 30 years and that no cures have come from it. But Betsy isn't doing therapeutic research. She's doing basic research, you know, healthy engine research, if you will. She's trying to help us understand how the brain works in the first place. And her research findings Feed the translational applied research that follows to bring us treatments and cures. I don't think most folks understand how basic and applied research differ. And I don't think they understand how basic and applied research are connected sequentially. Can you expand on this a bit for our listeners?
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about one really elegant example of how the threads of basic science can get woven together to create new treatments. Uh, So I like to talk about the case of Dr. Malin DeLong. He was a neurologist scientist who started his career working as a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, part of the NIH. Um, He began his training in the late 1960s. And at that time, the goal of his research was really to understand a basic research question, a fundamental research question. And that is how the brain controls our intentional body movements. So when you're cradling a baby or you're petting your dog or you're feeding yourself, Your brain is causing your body to move in a very coordinated and intentional manner that basically reflects your motivation. And Dr. DeLong wanted to study how this happens. Again, this is basic research, just figuring out how the car engine runs. He was asked by his bosses to study a set of structures in the brain called the basal ganglia. Um, They're deep in the brain and we knew very little about them at the time he began his research. Dr. DeLong used electrodes, which are placed into these brain structures which allowed him to listen in as brain cells received and processed and transmitted information. He studied monkeys that were moving their arms and hands to receive rewards, and the monkeys were unable to feel the experiment because the brain has no tactile or pain sensors within it, so electrodes can be placed into the brain and are not perceived by the subjects. And after he studied the neurons in different parts of the basal ganglia, he began to understand that the structures were interconnected and that information flowed between them in a very regular way fashion. Neurons in one structure could excite or inhibit neurons in another structure and he began to realize how all of this came together to produce voluntary movement. Essentially, he was charting the roads and the highways by which information flowed in the brain and as his work progressed he was able to produce what amounts to a road map that explained the various ways information moves through brain circuits to ultimately produce coordinated movements. This road map today is so important that is now featured in every major neuroscience textbook used in universities, and medical schools, nursing schools, and the like. And after his roadmap was completed, he began to understand the health-oriented implications of this work, and he pivoted his research to applied translational research. He suspected that the causes of movement disorders, including things like Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, were likely to be found within the circuits he had already charted. And he, began, he continued studying the basal ganglia and, and animal models of Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease, finding that the interactions between structures were highly abnormal as compared to the healthy brain. And he recognized that if he could control this circuit, if he could normalize the activity of the basal ganglia, the monkeys with simulated Parkinson's disease would regain their control over their movements, and so would patients who have the real disease. Specifically, he and others knew that they could use deep brain stimulation, where we actually use an electrode to modulate the activity of brain cells, um, to accomplish this. And in reality, his roadmap really became a treasure map with an X marks the spot over a structure called the subthalamic nucleus. He corrected the activity of this structure in Parkinson's disease monkeys to allow them to regain motor control, and in 2001, some 40 years after he started his research, the FDA approved deep brain stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus as a treatment for advanced Parkinson's disease. And it really tells how you can get from really fundamental basic research to effective treatments that actually improve people's lives.
0: Yeah, it's a really good example. I mean, and that's, that's exactly right. He tried to, you know, he tried to understand the, the general area and went to work trying to sort out how it really works. Then, um, he noticed that uh, when it wasn't working properly, he could recognize where the problem was because now he knew what it looked like when it was working, and before you know it, x marks a spot just like you said, only before you notice thirty years you know, thirty years seems like a lifetime to people who are used to instant gratification um and I think that's just a reflection of um a general lack of understanding about how deeply complex biological systems are. So keeping with that theme then, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Dr. Murray's work um, specifically. Um, maybe you can clarify first how her studies are conducted. Secondly, maybe the real point of her studies and, and where her work has brought us uh, similarly to Dr. DeLong from then to now.
1: Sure, so Dr. Murray is also a scientist at the National Institute of Mental Health, and her research has parallels to Dr. DeLong's work. Um, The difference is that the roadmap she is working on explains how the brain makes it possible for us to reason, to think, to remember, to experience emotions, functions that we really think of as being very foundational to our individual experiences as human beings. Um, She uses a set of approaches in which she can map the interacting structures in the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. And rather than using electrodes to eavesdrop on neurons, uh, she uses an approach called ablation, in which subsets of neurons are deleted from the brain to infer what they were doing. In other words, whatever change in behavior is observed after the neurons are removed can be attributed from a cause-effect perspective to those particular cells. The roadmap for cognition, for memory, and affect we have today has been basically fundamentally reshaped by her research. Though, of course, many other researchers have contributed to it as well. Uh, She's discovered new routes for information processing, she's found unexpected roles for these structures in cognition, and she even overturned some seriously erroneous conclusions in past research. And the impact of her roadmap can't be overstated. Every time you remember a joyous event or you make an important life decision, information is traversing through the brain pathways that have been delineated on her roadmap. And I like to think, where would neuroscience be today if this map did not exist? How can we truly understand ourselves without it? And monkeys have been critical to this research because the structures and the circuits that she studies are much more similar in monkeys and humans than they are in rats or mice and humans. In fact, some of the brain structures on her roadmap essentially do not exist in the rodent brain at all, particularly parts of the frontal lobe. Rodents are not just small humans, they share some brain circuitry with us, and not others. And this makes them useful models for some brain systems, but not for others. In humans, monkeys and mice are made of the same basic building blocks, the cells and molecules that make up our organs, but they're arranged differently in each species, which confers additional functions. And just like the same Lego pieces can be rearranged into a fort, or a car, or a space fighter, Uh, brain cells can be arranged at different circuits in different brains, and the arrangement of neurons in the monkey brain resembles that of the human to a much greater degree. Consequently, of all the scientific disciplines, progress in neuroscience really requires non-human primates, along with various other types of traditional and non-traditional animal models. And if the roadmap for cognition and memory and affect had been drawn based on information learned only in rodents, it wouldn't be sufficiently useful to design therapies that are going to treat the human brain. And because of the success of this line of work, the roadmap is now complete enough to start asking questions about how structures in the brain can be regulated to treat disorders of thinking, of cognition, of memory, and affect, just the way that Dr. DeLong began thinking about how to treat his movement disorders. Today, I know of clinical trials of devices that directly stimulate or inhibit the brain to treat Alzheimer's disease, which is a memory disorder, schizophrenia, a thought disorder, and these scientists are looking at the roadmap that Dr. Murray contributed to when they're designing their trials. And although the trials are ongoing, any successes that come from them will be fundamentally based upon her foundational animal research.
0: Mm. That's a great word, foundational. That's exactly right. So brain researchers today are relying on the map that she's created to study all of these things that are impacting, you know, real people and real families, Alzheimer's disease, um, schizophrenia, uh, even some of the anxiety disorders, right? Um, so now we have people that are, are starting from a really well-informed place to launch their own studies. And that's going to translate into, you know, stronger cures, faster cures um, for all of the people and animals we love. So I think that's amazing. In keeping with the theme of animal research just sort of being old fashioned and, and, and not valuable and, and it doesn't work and all of this. Um, the suggestion instead is, listen, better methods exist now, right? There are non animal alternatives or more, uh, quote unquote human relevant alternatives to working with animals that can give us these answers, you know, and therefore the animals aren't necessary. And in this piece, there's a paragraph that actually says, um, this is not the 1400s. Each of us carries around a powerful computer in our pockets that has 100,000 times the processing power of the computer that landed humans on the moon, for goodness sake. Dr. Murray could use one of several safe, reliably tested, non-animal methods to study brain activity for exactly the types of behavior she's trying to measure in monkeys. What do you have to say about that?
1: To me, there's no doubt that there are emerging alternatives to live animal use in biomedical research. Um, but what the critics fail to mention, of course, is that many, probably most, of all the alternatives that do exist today were developed by animal researchers themselves. Um, and much of this technological progress has allowed us to use fewer animals and to refine our techniques, and they came from animal research labs themselves. I think that's an important point. Another area of significant promise in the search for non-animal alternatives is the development of organoids. These are basically um, bits of human tissue grown on chips. You've probably seen these in the news from time to time. These organoids have some limited features of human organs. Um, in neuroscience, researchers have developed human brain organoids and have begun characterizing them to study disease states. But perhaps not surprisingly, these organoids do not mature into a human brain. Um, in fact, it would be unethical to grow a fully functional human brain in addition and do experiments upon it, even if you could. Um, and at present, these organoids grow to be about four millimeters in size, you know, roughly the size of a pea, um, and they do not have the complex structures of the human brain. Um, none of these brain, none of the brain regions and the information pathways on Dr. DeLong's or Dr. Murray's roadmaps are found in these organoids. Um, certain key types of brain cells are missing from the organoids altogether. So while there is promise to them, and I have no doubt they're going to become much more powerful in the future, They are just not alternatives to rodent or monkey models in neuroscience today. So the alternatives that PETA is talking about just don't exist today.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an important point, and um, you know, I think it's also an important point to mention that um, many researchers uh, integrate work with um, organoids and, and other stem cell-based technologies into uh, their science when it's relevant, depending on the questions they're asking. And so you can you can look at certain things, but you make a really good point here. You know, when when you're talking about the brain and how it handles mental states, cognition. Um, that 's a different situation and um, and you really there 's no full replacement for animals, I think, on any level in any research at this point, but certainly not for studying primate cognition. I mean when you get to that place, you really need to work with primates, and so um, they 're either non human or they 're human and um, and we can do so much with imaging. But when it gets down to, you know, sort of the work that you've been describing, creating roadmaps and, you know, you've got to actually get into the brain and look at these connections directly, you know, and, and remove things to make inferences and, and, and listen to neurons. And there's, there's really no way to characterize that without, you know, doing that. So uh, the last thing I wanted you to touch on in this piece is where they say, you know, nothing, nothing has come of all of this valuable work that, that, Dr. Betsy Murray has done with monkeys with respect to brain research and understanding cognition. Can, can you expand on that a little more?
1: Absolutely. So first and foremost, I think it's important for us to understand or articulate the fact that we understand ourselves as human beings better because of her research. The functions um, that our brain is capable of executing, carrying out, um, we understand because of her work. And that's alone a really critical accomplishment. In addition, as I've already mentioned, direct brain interventions are being trialed right now, today, for mental health and neurological disorders as a consequence of the work um, that she performed. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, science can sometimes feel like it's a little slow. Like, why did it take 30 years for Dr. DeLong's basic research to lead to a device? Um, one of the reasons it's slow is because it's important that we get it right. The problem we're trying to tackle is so critical that we have to get these things right. It's essential we get it right. So what has come from Dr. Murray's research so far is a roadmap that tells us a lot more about what it means to be humans. There are some good hypotheses that are germinating clinical trials. And more importantly, there's hope for these otherwise hopeless conditions. There's hope that science of the type she's doing, including humane and responsible animal research, is going to change the circumstances for patients Whose diseases are insufficiently treated today
0: right, like Alzheimer's which has touched so many of us and panic disorder and depression and schizophrenia and um, you know even some of the learning and memory disorders that impact us and our and our children yeah it is it's just uh, it's this whole other world of um, of disease states that we're trying to get a handle on and It's not quite the same as figuring out what part of the brain moves the leg, right? It's just just the the mental states in and of themselves are so complex. And then, yeah, getting a handle on the complexities of the the brain um, and the areas of the brain that control all of this is really just, um, it's just amazing, I think, that she has been able to, in her, you know, career of 30 or more years, put so much of that together, really honestly, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's just mind boggling that somebody has basically, as you've said, created a roadmap for how the brain thinks that's astounding. Absolutely.
1: And, and and again, the impact of the work can spread, right? It can spread so broadly and have downstream effects on so many other fields. Think about this, right? Not that long ago in in the previous century, Three researchers were doing basic research on DNA, Franklin, Watson, and Crick. How, how little did they know that at the time that you know, the COVID vaccines we're all taking today could not happen without them addressing this really fundamental basic science question, how does DNA work? What is its shape? What is the its structure? It's, 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 it's very difficult to overstate the, the, the long downstream consequences of really, really foundationally important and significant basic research.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for your time and your expertise um, and your uh, gift at making these things really clear. I really appreciate you and I'm sure our listeners do as well. Absolutely. Okay. Full transparency. This episode is especially important to me because I know Betsy personally. I did brain research in monkeys with her as a postdoctoral fellow at the NIH, and we've remained friends for over 20 years. Betsy Murray is a beautiful person, brilliant, loving, and kind, and she's a godsend for the many millions of people struggling with mental illness worldwide, now and for generations to come, because her basic brain research has provided a roadmap for mental health treatments and cures that simply didn't exist before, and it wouldn't exist now if not for her obsession with, as Dr. Yench put it, getting it right, and as an aside... Getting it right means as much to Betsy personally as it does professionally. Early in her career, she lost someone very dear to her as a child. Her cousin, who was really like her sister, battled with depression as an adult and killed herself, leaving a husband and two children behind. You see, that's the thing about mental illness. While it affects millions of us directly, It affects millions more of us indirectly, like parents and siblings, friends, life partners, and children who have to learn how to live with, and sometimes without, their affected loved ones. So many lives torn apart. But we can pursue new treatment strategies now, thanks in large part to the 30 years spent by Dr. Elizabeth Murray on getting it right. Now, in the interest of truth and honesty, I need to take a few moments to set some things straight regarding PETA's claims against Betsy. As always, my intention here is to be truthful, not adversarial. The focus of PETA's campaign is on what they call Betsy's, quote, ghoulish monkey fright tests, end quote, and their assertion that she's wasted millions of taxpayer dollars, quote, terrifying brain-damaged monkeys with fake snakes and spiders in useless experiments. She saws open her victim's skulls, then injects toxins to burn the brain cells. She sews them back up, then places them in a small cage that probably reeks of the previous victim's fear. She then deliberately provokes their worst fears, just to see how they'll react. And when she's through with them, she kills them, End quote. Wow. <laughs> I've done several brain surgeries and behavioral studies on monkeys with Dr. Murray. And I have to tell you, this is a pretty blatant mischaracterization of her work. Let's talk briefly about why and how this study is actually done. I'll also include a reference for this study on the episode response page so you can read it for yourself. The amygdala is a region of the brain that's implicated in defensive behavior and fear. Understanding how the amygdala works can help us develop more effective treatments for anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and related disorders. And as I've said, Betsy is well known for correcting previously held beliefs about how our brains work. And a lot of that has to do with how precisely she's been able to delete brain regions using MRI-guided procedures to carefully deliver neurotoxins to only the area of interest without damaging adjoining regions, something that just wasn't possible in the early days of brain research. Of course, just so you all know, all of this is done in an operating room under aseptic conditions with veterinary specialists on hand. The monkeys are anesthetized during the procedure, and they're provided with pain medication, steroids, and anything else they need to heal and be comfortable during recovery, just like any of us who've had surgery. When they're fully recovered, the monkeys are trained using treats and positive reinforcement techniques to jump from their home cage to a small test cage that's rolled into the chamber designed for their behavioral task. Now, let's clarify the facts related to the spider and snake task Pete has been hammering Betsy about. Snakes are natural predators of monkeys, and monkeys are hardwired to fear and avoid them. Now, spiders don't eat monkeys, but they don't like them. So in this task, monkeys see either a neutral object, a rubber spider, or a rubber snake fully contained within a clear box. Now there's a treat at the back edge, on top of that box, and the monkeys have to reach over the object to retrieve it. They get 30 seconds to take the treat before a solid door goes down between them and the object. After they sit quietly for another 30 seconds, the door opens to a new object and treat. The entire session lasts 10 minutes, so the monkeys basically get 10 chances to take the treat. On eight of those trials, they're presented with a neutral object, so those treats are freebies. The other two trials include one presentation of the spider and one presentation of the snake. The monkeys get a total of five 10-minute sessions, just like this one, every other day. So their actual exposure to the rubber snake and spider is pretty limited. I mean, they see each one of them a total of five times across 10 days, for no more than 30 seconds each time. When normal monkeys see the spider or the snake, they either take longer to reach over them and take the treat or they don't take the treat at all. And they exhibit a variety of defensive behaviors like freezing or withdrawing to the back or shaking their test cage. But they also tend to just look away, like most of us do when a scene we don't want to see comes up in a movie or on TV. Regardless of the reaction at the time, however, They go straight for the treat the very next time a neutral object is presented. Now, monkeys without amygdalas show none of these fear responses. In fact, several of them actually tried to grasp the snake as they reached for the treat. In other words, these animals treat the spider and the snake like neutral objects, which points to the importance of the amygdala for fearful behavior, which is the point of the study. But it also calls into question PETA's completely false claim that Dr. Murray is, quote, terrifying brain damaged monkeys with fake snakes and spiders, end quote. This is just not true. They don't even see them as scary. What's more is that the normal monkeys only experience fake snakes and spiders for a maximum of five minutes spread across 216 hours. Now, it's hard to imagine that any reasonable person would agree that any of these animals, surgically manipulated or not, are being terrorized, as PETA claims. Nevertheless, PETA has used this false claim to mobilize supporters, including celebrities, to humiliate and demonize Betsy publicly, with angry protests at her job and at her home, along with thousands of emails and phone calls and horrific postings about her at bus stops and telephone poles and the doors of her neighbors, calling on everyone to urge the NIH to stop wasting their money and end her, quote, barbaric, useless terror tests on monkeys, end quote. They even wrote an article stating that I was disturbed by what I saw in her lab when we worked together, something I never said. A Complete Fabrication, that I'll share with you on our episode response page. Betsy has always been kind to her animals. And she's always expected the same from everyone who worked with her. Listen, it seems to me like Dr. Elizabeth Murray is the one being terrorized here. And all of it's based on claims that don't actually hold water. I'm trying to understand why anyone would be anything other than grateful to her for the progress she's delivered over the course of her research career. Now, I understand that everyone's entitled to their opinion, regardless of the facts. But what do baseless campaigns like this cost the rest of us? What about our medical future? Look, here's the truth. Dr. Elizabeth Murray's work has clarified how our brains support thought, learning and memory, reason and emotion. Getting that roadmap right is a gift from her to the world because we're now better positioned to treat mental health issues than ever before. She and the monkeys who lost their lives for this clarity are heroes to all of us, including those among us who choose to believe otherwise. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us today. If this podcast has shaped your understanding of public health and the involvement of animals in research, please become a Get Real Monthly supporter. Your donation will help us continue to bring honest content to everyone who benefits from medical advances. We all deserve to know the facts. You can become a supporter and send me questions or comments you have about this episode or animal research in general by visiting our website at getrealpodcast.info. Coming up. How do research animals help us understand and treat addictions? We'll cover this and more on our next episode of Get Real. You can check for announcements by following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll talk soon.